and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Professor Michael Jacobides, one of the world's most respected management thinkers. Professor Jacobides is a professor of strategy at London Business School, as well as an advisor to global think tanks and consulting businesses, including the New York Fed and the Boston Consulting Group. I'm coming to you today from outside the Houlandries Natural History Museum in Athens. We've just had a fantastic conversation with Professor Michael Jacobides, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. We spent some time going through his theories on ecosystems, uh, the evolutions of organizational structures, and how they can all feed into the challenges that we're currently facing with the climate crisis today. It was a fantastic conversation, very, very interesting in, in lots of ways, where we looked at ecosystems as drivers for growth. We looked at how individual players feed into this ecosystem. What are the roles of governments? What are the roles of existing energy providers? And what are the roles of consumers or even big, big tech within uh, making this fundamental change that we all think uh, needs to happen? So it was a fantastic conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed having it, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Jacobides, for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to be sitting down with you and having this conversation. We're here in the National History Museum in Athens, uh, your, your hometown. Uh, thank you very much for inviting us and uh, hosting us here. A pleasure. So if we could start, uh, would you mind um, briefly describing your journey to this point of being a professor in London Business School and your interest in ecosystems and how you got here? Well, uh, in the risk of speaking a little too much about my own journey, let me speak a little bit about the journey of the ideas that we're going to be discussing today, which relates to ecosystems. And I had been an industry scholar. I was interested in how industries are structured, how things become more or less vertically integrated, and the broader question of economic organization. And then I started realizing that what we call sectors are not given from technology, are not things that are created and are stable either in time or across different countries, but they are the result of conscious effort of industry participants to shape the rules of the game uh, that defines who does what and also who takes what. So that was the idea of the construct called industry architectures. And it was interesting to me because I could see how they change over time, how policy affects them, and how firms are trying to shape the rules of the game to their own advantage. Now, over time, I started hearing this word ecosystems over and over again. And initially, I was skeptical. I thought that it was just a lot of hot air. And I started looking into it. And I said, well, why is everyone speaking about these ecosystems? And I realized, uh, the more I looked at it, that it was closely related to the things I'm interested in, because that represented a new way of organizing. And at the same time that we had the dissolution of these industry boundaries, the fact that things stopped being organized in simple ways so that you can easily define who your buyers and suppliers are, what are the limits of your own activities, you start seeing lots of companies that need to collaborate to bring together new value propositions and that span 
sectors that were previously unconnected and find ways of linking with each other in order to develop uh, the joint value add. That made me look into ecosystems and ask even theoretically, what is new? Why is this not just a buzzword? Why isn't it something that we have seen simply with a more trendy skin? And I think that we are seeing a true transformation in the way the world is organized now. Of course, it doesn't take a genius to know it now. And you just look at where the market capitalization goes and you look at firms that build their own ecosystems. You look at power and the concerns that we have. And if you think about the regulatory context today, it is about thinking how these complementers will work with these big orchestrators, big tech that isn't only technology, but they are firms that organize how things are structured. And I think that uh, what I've spent the last few years working on is understanding not only how industries evolve and how value is created and distributed, but also how these ecosystems are structured and what we can do to ensure that we have a fair level playing field, but also how we can harness their power in order to arrive to the more complicated goals that this world is facing. And that includes some of the climate emergency that uh, is not always as evident as it should be. So you're defining ecosystems as very much focused in on the, on the organization. So it's, it's interrelationships of organizations. Would you define it more broadly to bring in kind of governmental agencies or other, other factors, scientists? One of the challenges of the word ecosystem is that it's used in many different ways. First of all, it is a wonderful poetry. It's evocative. People think about how they can bring together different uh, types of institutions to add value. And part of the uh, more poetic uh, version of them is the fact that you need to create the context, often geographical, for these things to coexist perhaps a new version of what we used to be calling clusters. And that, for sure, uh, relates to the government, relates to academic institutions, relates to policy that facilitates it. But I think that in addition to the loose idea of collocation, which is something which is not terribly new, and people had started looking at it from the 1980s, what we now see is something which is much more operational. So moving from the poetry of ecosystems to the strategy of ecosystems, you see that there is an increasing set of firms that consciously works together to create an outcome. Why? Well, because things need to interoperate in ways that are quite concrete. It's not just going having a beer with someone who lives in the same town and, hey, here's the funder and here's the academic and here's uh, the company that has a startup and perhaps a bigger company is going to buy the startup and isn't it great to have them in the same spot? It is something that says, well, in order for us to be able to do something that works together, we need to think about the interfaces the standards that allow us to create these joint value uh, adding activities. We need to find ways in which we organize and delegate the responsibilities and the upsides. And what you see in these ecosystems, you see, for instance, in these uh, technology firms that are building their own ecosystems, is that they are very consciously structuring these relationships. So I think that when we speak about these ecosystems, we mean both. And what you see is that the standards, the industry standards, are usually not sufficient. Uh, and behind that are the changes both in regulation and in technology. Uh, and what do I mean? Well, in terms of regulation, 
the way that we used to organize ourselves is that we used to have sectors that had very strictly delimited areas of operation. The same way that in the past we used to have guilds, you know, you know what it is to uh, make shoes or be a lawyer, be a doctor. Nobody else is going to do that. Well, now regulators have understood that that's rent-seeking. And they're like, let's experiment a little bit more. So that's part one. The second thing is technology, and in particular digital technology, which means that, hey, rather than focusing on one product in itself, you may want to think about things that are connecting. And in order to make them interconnect better, you need to ensure that you find the technology that binds them. Think about this device, mobile phones that pervade our day. Essentially, what they consist of is not only complicated technologies made by a myriad players that have been assembled by one producer, but also the interfaces that allow Apple or Google, Android, to create ecosystems of their complementors that make them work. So when we think about these ecosystems, they are these groups of organizations that make a solution work. And going back to the climate emergency that I mentioned, I think that it is becoming clear that what we need is something that is more thought through and less disparate. So I think that energy is an area that is calling for, but has not yet witnessed as much of a revolution in terms of the ecosystems and what they could deliver in this area. I guess one of the big differences between an ecosystem in nature and an ecosystem in business is that you don't have like, a lion going and telling a tree to go and grow some leaves up, up, the, up at the tops of the drafts beneath them. But in, in the energy sector, there's very much what you need to do. You need to be to have a coordinator saying, put the solar panels up there. That's, that's where, where the energy can be produced and that's where it needs to be filtered down. Absolutely. So if you think about what we have seen in other sectors and sectors where we see these ecosystems, we see that there is one, usually it's one player, sometimes it could be a looser um, affiliation of different players that are setting the rules of the game, the orchestrators, the ones that define what are the parameters that allow different players to come and contribute. So if you think, for instance, in terms of what uh, the technology firms like Google and Microsoft and Facebook are doing, they're saying, tell you what, we're going to create a set of rules that will define what it is that you will contribute. By the way, I'm going to tell you how much revenue we're going to get, usually 30%. If I can get away with it, okay, perhaps 15%. Mm, if people push me, I might um, uh, reduce that. And in addition to that, I, the orchestrator, will make sure that the system hangs together nicely. The reason that you need an orchestrator rather than any set of industry standards is that there is a number of choices that are needed to adjust to the interdependency between parties. So not wanting to be too technical, what we have seen is that modular technologies, which means that you have separate areas, but that still are interconnected, lend themselves to be organized through ecosystems. You need someone who minds the architecture of the entire thing, and then you can allow different players to innovate and come up with ideas. But there is this critical role, orchestrator. What do we see in other sectors? We see usually either one strong firm, more rarely you might see something that is, um, well, like you saw, for instance, in the programming world in Linux. It wasn't a firm, but it was a decision to do that in a more decentralized fashion. Why? Well, because the person who put it together, Linus Torvald, was a bit of an idealist. In the energy world, given that the objective isn't just to make a buck where you have different players trying it, I think that there is a great opportunity of coming up 
with these ecosystems and the orchestration, who's going to put it together, is one of the things that is still a little bit up for grabs. You could say that a normal orchestrator would be a government actor. The problem, though, is that it may be a little difficult with government actors to come up with the idea. Now, I mean no disrespect to regulators, but let's be real. What we have done, unfortunately, as a result of populist um, uh, politics, is that we have reduced the amount of compensation and skills that exist, and we have increased the amount of problems that people in policy need to tackle. Is it statistically likely that you'll find someone with such a good understanding of the system who's going to come up with a great idea uh, in terms of how they can put it together? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So you need some people who come from the private sector. And I think there is now the beginning of some interest of players who understand the structural gap, the need for someone who can come and coordinate and orchestrate these players. But the question of who is this going to be in the sector is still up for grabs. Will it be engineering firms? Will it be energy players? And clearly, depending on who orchestrates it, you're going to have different emphasis, different results. Just to give you a final little aside in the most unlikely of examples, think about uh, a study that I'm doing now in terms of the metaverse ecosystem. What you see is that the big technology firms have an entirely different vision of what the metaverse is. What Microsoft does, what, what Sandbox wants to do is very different. Why? Well, because they want to create a world to their own advantage that still delivers the benefits. So if it comes back to energy, Clearly, different players will have different visions of your future. But there is a big existential question out there of needing to do much better than we're doing in a shorter period of time. So we need it, and we can see how the details will pan out, I think, over the next few years. It's even like conceptually very difficult and perhaps misleading to be calling this a climate crisis, because there's a whole series of, of, of smaller um, crises on a global basis, on a local basis, that, that all kind of feed into one overarching problem. And trying to find a single coordinator to take it all out, unless um, there's an entirely different world, and we're, we're all ruled from, from, say, Beijing, where they're being very effective at, uh, at, at rolling out their, their renewable technology. They've got, you've got a single government actor who is saying, we need to make these changes, and they're just going ahead and doing it. A little bit more difficult in, in in the US and Europe. You know, we don't have we don't have that type of you know centralized government. Absolutely. Well, let me give you one uh, simple analogy. If you think about one of the reasons that all these big technology firms became so profitable, is that they were able to build ecosystems where nobody operated. The types of things that you're not able to do through your phone are magnificent in terms of the fact that they are new, which also means that there was nobody's particular toes that you would tread on. Now, this is very important. Now, think about some that treaded on some shoes. Think about Uber and the extent to which taxi drivers were out in the streets trying to block it, saying, are you kidding me? This will never go ahead. I'm not going to allow that to happen. I mean, if you just think about the political power that taxi drivers have, and if you compare that with the political power that fossil fuel companies have, I think you can start seeing what the main difference is. One of them is the biggest, one of the biggest 
campaign contributors, PR spenders, uh, consulting and advertising spenders in the world. The others are just hapless taxi drivers. And if you see that there is a dogged resistance of taxi drivers, you can imagine that vested interests with a lot of cash because right now energy is also becoming scarce. And uh, that means, as we saw with the Ukrainian war, that unfortunately those that are producing are reaping uh, perversely the benefits. Well, that essentially means that you have a great resistance to change. And in particular, anything that is uh, going to alter the way in which your traditional business made money. Now, this means that for sure, we have reasons to expect that there isn't going to be an enthusiastic uptake. But I think that the possibility of creating some ecosystems that will mobilize uh, the actors that can both see and potentially benefit from these new developments is the only hope we have. We cannot hope that there's going to be some centralized, enlightened government that will put political cost and pressures from business to government to the side to say, I am now going to think only about the salvation of the world and I will not look at an election cycle, I will look for my, at my children. Would I like it to happen? Sure. Do I expect it to happen? Not tomorrow. So what can we expect? I think that what we can expect is the creation of something that will create upside for players which individually would not quite see it, but when you put them together, they start creating a compelling proposition. And that this tries to entice people who, even on the political side, say, well, you know what? All of a sudden, especially with younger people, we see climate becoming an important worry. Let's think about what we can offer constructively. And I think that this is where my hope is that we're going to deal with problems in this uh, slightly more innovative way. As the conversation is developing, it seems to be framing the ecosystem as the broader climate change movement. So it's the, the, the scientists, it's the politicians, it's the, the Greta Thunbergs, it's, the, it's all of the people who are all working together who are then creating the, the impetus for change? I would say yes and no in the following sense. Yes, in the sense of the word as poetry, and you need all of that in order to have the impetus of creating change. No, because if you go from ecosystem as poetry, the sets of people who together believe or can interact to drive an outcome to something which is a little bit more operational, i.e. the creation of specific set of players with delimited rules, roles, templates, ways of operating, ways of monetizing their ideas, their innovations, ways of apportioning the upsides and the downsides, ways of funding it from the capital market. This is what I think will give the difference because otherwise we can have a heck of a lot of goodwill, but I'm not sure that goodwill will be able to aggregate and provide results. So I think that what we are in need of is finding ways of addressing systemic problems. I think that one of the challenges that, that we get is that we see that there are opportunities of combining technologies, but the fragmented approach that we have is getting in the way of offering solutions. A few months ago, I wrote a, a, um, a paper, a white paper with the chief strategy officer and chief innovation officer of Philips. Um, and we were looking at an equivalent issue in healthcare. And we said, well, one of the things that we could look at is how data is going to be enabling the creation of a better way 
of managing healthcare, focused much more on prevention, focusing on the quality of life, as opposed to doing what people usually do, which is they deal with the problem when the problem has quite literally burst and, you know, hospital stays are uh, expensive and people are debilitated and they die and all these unfortunate uh, results of not having taken advantage of the opportunities that exist before. Now, the problem isn't that we just like the technology, and you mentioned China, and in China they say, well, we don't terribly care about privacy anyway, so we're going to be, sorry for being a bit economical with time, but there are nuances, of course, but people are much more um, open and, and happy to share information, which means that there have been advances in the creation of ecosystems that manage healthcare, and information is flowing through in ways that can support well-being, even if it shares more information. The creation of data templates that would allow us to do that, that would allow public authorities to be able to support uh, healthcare in more enlightened ways, are finding themselves to be challenged. And the reason that they find themselves to be challenged is that there are no standards that allow the possibility to be turned into reality. So equivalently, I think that what needs to happen is to think about how you can create these templates. Yeah. Uh, can you do that in other complex problems? You, you can. Uh, I can give you examples of other ecosystems that are trying to do that bottom-up, aligning different players in order to uh, see how they can add value. And that's where I think that taking the poetry and turning it from the analogy to a tool that combines the energy of different players is what should be able to make the difference. I think it's a fantastic analogy uh, to the hospital because there is an awful lot of we got a sick patient here, a series of sick patients in any 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 given community, and how data can be helping that, and how building ecosystems around can be helping that. But it also implies that we shouldn't be looking at it from the entire movement ecosystem point of view. We should be looking at it as as a seri series of of little problems. Exactly. Each of those problems are very large themselves, but but they're a series of problems you can deal with. In manageable units, have people that are providing something that improves uh, the environmental footprint uh, and that find solutions that are a little bit more joined up. Let me sort of uh, give you examples. How could you do that? Part of that could be that you think about the problem of motivating users as well as the problem of motivating complementers in terms of other industry participants. So um, there's a, a startup called Velocia uh, that is working, for instance, with Miami-Dade now expanding into, into other cities, which basically is dealing with the problem of uh, congestion and managing traffic. Now, the problem, of course, is there's no evident way. So how can you do it? Well, you try to find ways in which you, first of all, incentivize working with you know, Uber and Lyft and then saying, let's think about ride sharing in terms of many riders and rewarding them in some ways. Let's also find ways in which you do some extra rewards for the people who participate in uh, these programs that allow them to go in the special lanes that are also supported and find a uh, stable coin, which is what these uh, guys are producing, and then say, I will reward you with mass transit and I'm going to give you minutes in a bike or fares in a bus. That is also not used. So you're trying to do something that helps both motivate players to say, huh, I can do that, doesn't really cost me that much. There is a potential benefit that I can see. There's also a nice goodwill benefit. And 
I think that what is exciting here is that it might help you not only by finding new templates in which you can, for instance, build environmental uh, projects or projects with renewable energy, but also motivate players. And as we spoke about China, let me give you two uh, examples there. Um, and if you think about what Ant Financial has done uh, with Ant Forest, it is creating um, an ecosystem which is with itself and with its partners that is something that changes the behavior of the users. I don't, uh, let me explain briefly what Ant Forest does. Uh, because it's quite interesting, Ant Forest has 500 million users and is responsible for planting 200 million trees. How does it do that? Well, basically it tells people who have the Ant, uh, which is one of the biggest financial intermediaries. Um, it was supposed to be the biggest IPO in the world, uh, still parked, um, and allows uh, people that do environmentally responsible things to start having a virtual tree. And they gamify the experience. And as you grow your virtual tree, once your virtual tree becomes big enough, well, then this virtual tree is turned with some matching contributions into a real tree. And from your phone, you can see your, the digital images of where your tree is being planted and how it grows. Now, that buys stickiness and goodwill for Ant Group, for some of its partners. It also creates not only an excitement because it, you gamify the experience and um, other things that are, are super exciting, happy happy to share some of the recent research we've done with that in, in Evolution Limited, but um, I'm, uh, it also changes the perceptions of the people who are involved in these uh, ecosystems. So I think that what is interesting is that you can use these ecosystems not only to motivate different business partners, but also to start changing perceptions and actions of people and firms. And I think this combination of the rewards that it entails, the possibility of identifying ways in which you can put them together can be useful whether you think about mega projects and how you're not going to find yourself not really having an impact to things that may be small, but when you add them up, they help address the bigger problem beyond the goodwill, beyond the, gosh, we have an issue and we have to deal with it. So just changing track um, slightly, um, if we can go, if we can uh, possibly quote you back to yourself <laughs> from your Harvard Business Review article, uh, October 2019. It says, um, uh, today it is less and less likely that single firms can offer all the elements a customer needs, let alone afford to experiment with them. In fact, in a growing number of sectors, the firm and even the industry have ceased to be meaningful units of strategic analysis. Now, this portrays to me ecosystems as um, the essential constructs that allows for change in given circumstances, not in all circumstances, but in given circumstances. Could you perhaps explain what those circumstances are? Well, I think that there's a couple of things that, that uh, are make the, these uh, more prominent. One of them is the possibility of combining different sectors, and this is where digital technology comes together. Who would have thought that your fridge can order milk? It can order milk, and right now there's an interesting fight between 
people who make appliances, people like uh, GM appliances and higher, Samsung and LG, that are all pet betting on the kitchen hub and are trying to make the fridge the digital center of your home and say, hey, you run out of milk, press there, and I will order everything. So essentially, you're like, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm clearly moving outside just the narrow fridge of it. Why am I doing so? I'm doing it because I can connect the fridge to many different devices. Or if you are a Nest firm owned by Google, you say, in addition to having a thermostat, I can now start having deals with energy producers. I can have the information of how people are managing their electricity. I can say, I'm going to give you peace of mind. So I will negotiate with electricity producers and I will offer suggestions to the people who use Nest of saying when your machine will actually be turned on because Nest can be also connected to uh, the machine if it is a smart washer dryer and you will benefit from a lower tariff, which, by the way, will improve the efficiency with which the grid works. So essentially what you see is that you need these different organizations to work together when they can be connected in new ways. Digital technology and the possibility of linking previously disparate sectors is one thing that clearly provides a great opportunity because the opportunities for value add are not only within a sector, but in finding new ways that you can put them together. So anywhere that you see digitization and the possibility of joint value creation, not only at the individual product that you do, but on how you put them together. The second thing is when you see that there is the possibility of taking advantage of new opportunities because previously established regulatory limits are fading. So think about what has happened in financial services, where the regulators, rather than saying only banks will be allowed in this financial intermediation, they say, no, 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 quite the opposite. We want a very aggressive and open playing field. You know, in, for instance, in payments, you have now seen that going down. And then you say players saying, okay, so if we are able to compete here and if we're able to design it, what will we do? We'll focus on our strengths and we'll find some other complementers so that together we can start bundling up and being a credible alternative to the existing producers. So I think that this is another circumstance where you see these ecosystems um, uh, arising. And then the final thing is when you realize that there are unmet needs of the customers, whether it's because the customers were always poorly treated, primarily because the existing firms were a little bit lazy and did not do their homework and they offered them the same thing forever and ever, or because the customer needs have changed. And I think that part of the realization that we have an issue with the sustainability of the planet, to me, suggests that we may have some of that. So these are the things that make, I think, ecosystems more germane, the cross-cutting solutions more important, and when it becomes also statistically unlikely, there's going to be one firm that will be able to cover the entire spectrum. There are certain firms that are trying to cover the entire spectrum of everything. You, you mentioned Google and the fridge and the, your smart thermostats and whatever. I think it's a company like Google would very much like to be controlling all of that. And then Google would, you know, just the, the natural kind of extension of that thought is if, they're, if they're, they're, they're tapping into the grid and saying we're going to be buying from this at this tariff, 
Well, you could be buying from different people at different tariffs. You could be changing it as pricing comes in from different providers at different times. Google could be switching and going, okay, well, uh, we're, we're, on, we're buying from Scottish and Southern today. We're buying from, 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 from EDF five minutes later. So all of the margin gets sucked away from the, from the energy providers and gets brought into Google, which becomes ever, ever stronger. Well, I mean, if you've looked at the evolution of market capitalization, I think that your analysis um, has a very nice correspondence to stock price and their evolution. Look, one of the reasons that we have seen changes in regulation is to at least, at least mitigate that. And I've spent a fair amount of time over the last couple of years thinking about the uh, regulatory implications um, of how you want to uh, combat the excessive power because this type of power is one that the existing arsenal of antitrust was not well um, uh, structured to respond to because antitrust said looks at dominant market wants to define the market narrowly and you're like well that's missing the point yeah. so i think that your analysis uh, is very consistent with the evolution of the prices uh, in the stock market of these big firms and uh, I've spent a fair amount of time the last two years thinking about regulation, precisely because what um, the regulatory apparatus had not organized so far is a set of tools that can deal with this power. It used to focus on individual markets and it was able to deal with one market at a time. So it looked at what dominance was and the abuse of dominance. Whereas what we're really thinking about here is the possibility of some orchestrators that are extracting all of the value, commoditizing others. And I think that you see that in the world of energy, as you see it in the world of many other areas, which is how are you going to be using uh, information to your own advantage? By the way, this may mean there are some firms that say, hang on a minute, there may be juicier bits and I would like to commoditize others and you know, let them get stuck with the uh, most risky assets and the least appetizing returns. And I think that as we will see competition evolve in the field of energy, whether it is alternative or not, uh, it has to do with defining these boundaries. So regulation will absolutely play a part of it. Uh, but on the other hand, I think business practices will also evolve. And the creation of new ecosystems and new ways that you can put it together, the creation of templates uh, that are addressing it, uh, one segment at a time are going to be important. But we do have a new set of requirements in terms of how we think about regulation. And hopefully we'll start having a bit more of an open uh, dialogue, a discussion of how these things work. So are we saying that um, certainly in the, you know, the, the Google and the big tech uh, context that the person who owns the customer who owns the relationship with the customer is best positioned to be um, extracting the value and to be playing the, the role of lead and coordinator. And is there kind of an analogy then for the climate sector where there's no, there's no natural leadership as, as things stand? Is the natural leader then the person who's closest to the customer relationship? Hmm. Uh, you're starting to dig into the big interesting strategy questions uh, of our era. I think that the answer is, my, my sense at least of the answer is that um, the view of the value of owning the customer relationship may be possibly overplayed. I don't think that it always means that you have a unique advantage. You may be able to find other ways of adding value. It is true that it is statistically connected, but 
not always. It kind of depends on uh, the stickiness with other parts of the ecosystem. Let me give you one example in order to um, explain how the subtle differences may be really important in terms of who keeps value and who does not. Earlier, I spoke about phones, right? Um, in terms of phones, you have two major players. You have Apple and you have Google, at least in Europe, Android and iOS. Um, and in terms of the ecosystems of both of them, you're like, these are the ones that customers recognize and want to uh, buy. So clearly, the orchestrators of these ecosystems can do what they want and they cannot do what they want. You can see it because they charge 30%. Everyone is trying to sue them and then saying you are abusing power. And of course, they are saying, oh, no, 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 we're being very friendly. We have our costs, you understand. Um, on the other hand, consider other two companies that are, say, in the US, the dominant in other ecosystems, which is ride hailing. Uber and Lyft, you can name your duo, the usually two or three in different markets. You could say, well, great. So since you know Uber and Lyft, uh, then they have the relationship with the customer. They should be able to have wonderful margins. Well, if look, you look at their financials, they don't. Uh, they're probably vastly overvalued as they are because they're not making any money. The question is why? Well, it's an interesting uh, question that has to do with how tied up we are with them. We only have one phone. Very few people have both. On the other hand, in the same phone, we can have two apps for ride sharing. You can have Lyft, you can have uh, Uber, and in real time, you can see which one's gonna get me a cab first. Similarly, um, uh, if you think about drivers, drivers can go to either one. They can choose only the one that they like. They're not going to be suffering if they go only to one. On the other hand, consider Match.com, uh, the creators of Tinder, uh, and they would say, oh, okay, I don't like um, Apple. I'm gonna go with Google. In that case, I'm going to tell all my market that they can't date people that own iPhones. That's not nice. Lots of attractive people are going to be out of the market. So you see, these two apparently similar structures have got orchestrators, Apple and Google, that really can dominate because of the nature of stickiness, whereas Uber and Lyft can't. They may be close to the customer, but there are some other structural features that we can go into that define who has power and who does not. And as we're starting to understand the digital economy better, we're developing the tools that help us understand which are the really juicy positions that define gatekeepers and which are not. There are gatekeepers in B2B, not only B2C segments. So I would say that, sure, owning the customer tends to be associated with success, but it isn't do all and be all. It requires a bit more at work to understand what's driving it. And I think that that's going to be part of where the battlefield in terms of not only saving the planet, but also getting some business benefit out of it is going to be played out in the next few years. Yeah, I think that the, the, the tech infrastructure we're talking about um, is a very good example of how like Apple or Google wants to encourage its partners to be innovating. Like it wants to be encouraging Uber and Lyft and yeah, Match.com, whatever else, to be developing their own platforms to, to, to use on their phones. Um, where do you see kind of similar um, opportunities for the encouragement of 
um, other members of your uh, of your ecosystem to be competing. Well, let me let me start by giving you just an, a, a small snippet in terms of history, because people may be most familiar with the Apple i Store as the first such example, and to a large extent, you can think that Android was the one that followed suit. Uh, now, that on the other hand was not really um, a strategic plan initially. Uh, the uh, at least folklore has it that Steve Jobs, when he saw that people were developing for his cherished um, iPhone, started suing them. Uh, these were uh, the people who wanted to say, oh, don't worry about the programs Apple has. That's a t terrific phone. I can make it better. But I think soon enough he realized that the same mistake that he had when he was running Apple before he got kicked out the first time around by trying to be too vertically integrated was the same mistake that he was about to make the second time around. He said, okay, 180 degrees, and we're moving the different direction. Rather than trying to fight these people saying, no, damn it, I'm going to do everything integrated, why don't you find ways of leveraging what they do and turning it into an advantage, while, by the way, keeping the majority of the profits that they can generate for you, and everyone's going to be a winner. So I think that that has an interesting parable with what may be potentially happening in the energy sector. It is a little hard to move beyond the, I'm going to do it all, and I'm going to be vertically integrated. And when you have lived in a sector that has got very long cycles of capital investment, and uh, where dominance is measured in decades and sometimes centuries, it is difficult to change your ways. That, I think, is one of the fundamental even organizational issues, that there has been stability, and the stability was there partly because regulation, technology did not change. The requirements did not change. Right now, we have a requirement, perhaps an imperative, to change that is driven by this exogenous fact that endogenously we destroyed the planet. Uh, but in this is something that is now putting an onus to organizations that have a very different mentality. So I think that one of the challenges that exists in the sector is how we would be able to start being a little bit more accommodating to something that we're not grown up to do and something that even technology firms were not grown up to do. They wisened up. They understood that that's how money can be made or indeed lost. But I. You cannot expect that this is going to happen overnight. I do think that it comes with organizational issues of itself. And I think that it mostly comes from creating proofs of concept and all that in the context of vested interests, which are still quite strong. And given the price of hydrocarbons, uh, still have plenty of cash to say, I would very much like to continue printing money. I don't see why it would be changing my ways. But there is the argument that uh, the guys who are um, extracting the hydrocarbons are quite well positioned to be assisting in the energy transition. Absolutely right. And actually, there, many of them have at least on the surface done exactly that, beyond petroleum, not British petroleum. Uh, I think that there has been a significant change in terms of the stated intent. I think that what is has really been important, though, has been the fact that investors have changed their tune. And my sense of at least the environmental goals is that they became real when investors started creating criteria and everyone said, blimey, I'm going to stop having capital. I better change my ways. Or there is a new opportunity 
we need to fill them. So my hope, though, is to start seeing things that are a little bit more joined up. The problem, I think, was nicely summarized in a cover story of uh, the Spiegel, um, uh, I think, three years ago uh, with a broken wind turbine uh, and the Spiegel saying it's broke, it's not working. And that was referring to the environmental policy of Germany that has been a leader in renewables um, uh, for a quarter century, uh, has been pushing for the development of photovoltaic and then of all manner of renewables, very aggressive policies in terms of subsidies for use, subsidies in production, uh, supporting new technology. And still there is a sense of lack of joining up the dots. And I think that uh, what we need more of, especially now, as we're trying to trial new technologies that can perhaps combine together in effective ways, is new ways of organizing beyond the goodwill. And that's what I'm saying, that why I'm saying that my hope is that we will see some proofs of concept. And I think that policymakers can make a difference because they would be setting the parameters on which this uh, development uh, happens. It also, though, changes the roles of both entrepreneurs and ex people in existing firms because they need to reach beyond the narrow remit and create coalitions of collaborating organizations in order to bring a systemic change. And we're speaking about probably the most important systemic change that the world has seen. Never have we seen the need for something that is so far-reaching, economically speaking. Because usually, if you did something wrong, well, it wouldn't work, and then it collapsed, and something else would emerge. We don't have another planet. So if we destroy this planet, unfortunately, uh, we won't have much other choice. And this is why this is such an interesting and unique both opportunity and challenge, because we need to engineer things that would otherwise have taken much longer time and would have worked through trial and error. Um, in the context of climate and, uh, and this, this global emergency, is there a way of pressuring an ecosystem into existence? Or do you just need to be waiting for it to slowly evolve over time? I think that the answer is a qualified yes, but uh, let me explain why qualified is a fairly strong qualification to it. Um, Ecosystems need to get acceptance from partners and complementers. You've got the orchestrator. The orchestrator needs to work usually with some partners and complementers. The reason that we have seen them as effective is uh, that in as much as they need to evolve, there are pressures for them to change. Now, that has to do with the orchestrator being able to listen and being able to not be overly focused on their own interests. And I think that this is where there's a significant if. If you look at recent business history, you're going to see that there are some ecosystems where because the orchestrator was simply to focus on themselves rather than on the su success of the collective endeavor, they lost the game. Microsoft lost the game in the mobile operating system. Uh, Blackberry, because they were not open enough exactly. Uh, I still love the possibility of having real uh, keypads. Perhaps uh, uh, more visibly, uh, you saw Nokia with Symbian that had 67% of the market, which says that having a large market share doesn't necessarily drive success, uh, lost almost entirely because Android was able to mount an effective 
counter-offensive. So ecosystems essentially can compete, and the ones that are worse will lose out if they are not attractive to the complementers and to the partners. And unfortunately, the firms that sponsor them sometimes are too narrow-minded. Now, what has saved us in the technology world is that where one fails, another one emerges. Where Nokia is being too focused on its own interest in driving Symbian, Google, coming from a totally different place, but with important strategic interest, is able to create a more compelling way of putting them together. So ecosystems require acceptance to work, which means that a number of them can be expected to fail. But ecosystems can also be more generative in the sense that they create the variety that makes them more effective. If you provide enough frameworks and incentives for these to come up, then you're able to create the conditions that they may be able to flourish. And I think that the joint responsibility of both some hopefully enlightened players in the sector, as well as regulators, is to create these conditions that not only support an ecosystem, but support potentially competing ecosystems. Now, we're doing that in a really rudimentary way as we're thinking about the abuse of dominance in ecosystems with the Digital Markets Act and so on and so forth. But I think that this is the beginning of us saying, mm. what we really need to do is to facilitate a world whereby different constellation of players will work. And I think that there's going to be also a bit of an exercise that needs to be built. Because once people understand it, they will be more attentive to it. The challenge is being able to break the mold, as it were. Because again, I think that the industry has not seen it. So it will take a few efforts, and it may take some failures, but we need to accept that these failures are things that we tear turn into an advantage. This is where I think that among the bluster and significant overclaiming, Elon Musk has got a point to make. Uh, because I remember I was working with uh, EADS, the uh, European consortium making the uh, Ariane rockets and so on and so forth, uh, and they were really uh, aghast that there was a new competitor, that when their rockets blew up, rather than saying, that's it, no more funding, we will simply relegate you um, to a footnote that he said, terrific, we exploded in stage two, and that's much better than the previous one. The first one might explode in stage three or even make it back. And I think that this is the mentality that we need to take in developing uh, some of these new systems. And we need to create a policy environment that's a little bit more permissive. Yeah, we've been talking um, a lot about uh, the tech giants and um, in, in their developing their own ecosystems. Um, but clearly, they've got a very important role to play on, on the planet. Um, then one thing that they're currently doing is, without exception, they're saying we want to go to, uh, go to net zero carbon themselves. Uh, so that does put pressure, pressures down their, their supply chains and in their own uh, you know, data centers and whatever else. But what role, aside from that, so you know, their, own, their own energy consumption needs, do you think that the big tech players will have in the energy transition? I think that uh, the possibility that they have, given their massive reach, is to create things that uh, sensitize both businesses and individuals, creating the metrics that uh, allow them to share real time information in terms of the energy efficiency. When I have a simple guide to what I do in my life, the possibility of having something that tells me how a particular firm affects the environment may affect my shopping behavior. 
that's going to be as potent as saying, I have, well, I don't have capital. I think that the possibility of incorporating environmental responsibility and measuring it in a way that drives customer choice is going to be quite important. I also think that there is another uh, possibility by creating and supporting programs that can shift users' uh, choice and then allowing uh, small startups to take advantage of them. I mean, you want to sensitize people to their own environment and you want to allow the programs that can lead that, even if it is at the very local level. And I'll give you another uh, example of as small as it gets, uh, uh, a company in Stanton, Virginia called Trapes, uh, that is creating uh, essentially a scavenger hand with geolocation that allows people to interact with all historic uh, town centers and then as they do both discover things and connect to the local environment and reward them when they shop local. Imagine similar templates, similar games that make each one of us, like we saw with Ant Forest, that help people integrate uh, their environmental sensitivity, either by increasing it or embedding it in daily purchasing decisions or providing the template that allow the business partners to both measure it and be accountable. So I do think that there is leadership to be played by reminding them that they are the orchestrators and taking that responsibility seriously and then seeing how energy firms can work with them proposing ideas that might be novel. Okay, so you say they're mainly um, as nudgers of behavior. Nudgers of behavior, and I think the possibility of creating something that identifies uh, the output, the environmental output, and starts in including it in what um, uh, information you have when you're engaged, for instance, your shopping behavior or supporting it with gamification that is another trend that is currently going on uh, can certainly help. And I think that given that they have this role in touching customers, I think that being able to include it, I'm not saying impose it, but include it, I think would make a difference. Do you have any cause, major causes for optimism that we're going to get this solved? <laughs> I think that we have seen a lot of innovation come from the constellation of different players. So um, I think that the excitement that I see in terms of solving the environmental challenges is genuine. And much as I think that we do have the difficulty at, uh, in a business sense of established players not necessarily embracing it, once one or two start to do so and see that there is a benefit, I think that can change both the discourse and the way that firms engage. And uh, my hope is that a discontinuous change can then lead to a snowball effect and that this may help transform the sector. Uh, because if it doesn't, we're all going to be in a very hot place. Unfortunate reality is that you do need regulatory support. You do need the politicians in behind, and uh, politicians are, at least in the Western world, uh, change their views of the winds. That is true. And look, the problem I think can be summarized. Apparently, the new uh, eminence crise of uh, British politics said just uh, around the Queen's speech that, for instance, uh, 
audit reform is boring, and although the business community in the UK was clamouring for it, who cares about audit, uh, uh, audit reforms? You know, welcome to the new Enron that's going to uh, happen uh, sooner rather than late, later. I think that the answer there is trying to make things more visible, and you have heard me speak about the need to create uh, the power of these ecosystems to raise awareness. And rather than rely on uh, politicians uh, and policymakers to simply do the right thing, to make it incentive compatible to do that. And I think that that to me would be uh, a more hopeful way uh, out of it. Will it work? Will we not? You know, we'll be here and we'll find out. Time will tell. But I just have one more question, which, uh, which I, like, I try and ask to, to everybody, um, which is uh, why should people like viewers or, uh, or, or listeners uh, care about what you care about? Why should they go into academics? Why do you think this is a, a good place to be if you're passionate about, about the climate change agenda? I think because it, is, uh, it gives you the opportunity to set your own agenda, decide what is important and doggedly pursue it without much regard to the other considerations, I think that we've got an amazing deal. I mean, we, we are given the possibility to have a well-funded, uh, in relative terms, existence, uh, setting up our agenda. You don't need to think about the clients who are going to be using what you're saying. You don't need to think about who you're going to be upsetting. You have different criteria in terms of doing some research that passes the test of rigor and it can be a nuisance because some of the sometimes you being rigorous also means being pedantic. But this is the way that we move forward. And if anything, in a world which I think is uh, beleaguered because of populism and because people are simply trying to do things that are popular, sticking to something which is the best that we can find in terms of criteria of truth, of something that well, it's not this, it's that, and the academic communities working on a system to validate what makes sense and what doesn't feels much more gratifying because you can rely on something which, to the best of our knowledge, to the best of our understanding, is how we push our understanding and hopefully how we start spreading the word and turning it into action if we're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. But aren't we living in a post-truth world? We are, which is exactly why I think that people who are involved in the truth world need to have a louder voice and need to explain that popularity is not a criteria of truth. And that the fact that science gives you the best guess doesn't mean that any other guess is as good as that. And I think that we are right now fighting against a new type of um, Medieval is no longer fashionable because we understand that the medieval period was a little bit more enlightened than we originally thought, but that we are living through new types of dark ages where we are risking undoing what has been built through the best bet that we had to understand the world. Our understanding of the world is principles that underpin how knowledge develops, builds all of this around us, has built the phone, has built the camera, has built uh, the ability that we have to live in unprecedented quality of life. It also has allowed us to be much better in tackling problems that we have if we follow it. We risk forgetting it, and I guess that the need for some academics is to keep pushing it. Well, that's a really nice and optimistic note to be, to be leaving on. Thank you very much for your time, Professor. That's well, it's really fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us on that conversation. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, we hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and uh, to subscribe to, uh, to any of our channels. And uh, we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club.